Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Today, we share with you part one of our conversation with Michael Cataldo of California-based Cataldo Tax Law PC. In these conversations, we share with you insights into publications released by the Franchise Tax Board related to Public Law 86272, sourcing for sales apportionment purposes, and some recent tax cases. Saltivation was joined by special guest host Stacy Roberts. Follow us and let us know your thoughts. Welcome back to the Saltation Podcast. Today, we have a special guest with us to talk kind of all things California and learn about what they're doing, what some stuff has been pushed out as our, you know, one of our more populous states. We uh, have a lot to learn from our guests. So, Michael, if you want to kind of give us an introduction, we'll get right in. Absolutely. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you, Stacey. So my name is Michael Cataldo, and just a little background about myself. I graduated USF Law School in 1999, went to NYU uh, to get my LLM, which I completed in 2001, at which point I became employed by the Franchise Tax Board in their legal division and stayed there for about three years and went on to uh, Big Four Accounting and worked at Ernst & Young for three years. Mainly, I was doing uh, consulting work and memos and whatnot at Ernst & Young, and then later became more compliance, which led me to then part because that was really not my cup of tea. And I went over to a uh, big law, Pillsbury Winthrop Shop Pittman, their law firm and their salt practice. I was there for a little over 12 years. And then in 2018, I started my own practice, Cataldo Tax Law, which is where I am now doing largely the same thing, which is... uh, mainly California income franchise tax, as well as sales and use tax. But my practice is and has always really been a multi-jurisdictional. So I take matters in any state. And then there's also the, the local issues. Uh, San Francisco is a, is a big one, Oakland. And then also some property tax work. Yep. We as Colorado residents love those locals. That's right. We're very familiar. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you are. On a different scale. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I don't have the nightmare you have. No. (laughs) Eh, It's a different nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Like, California's got, like, you know, San Francisco, Oakland, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Those are, like, the main local ones where there's a lot of controversy on their their local, like, gross receipts, taxes. Mm -hmm. Property tax disputes are also local as well. So those are all over the place, depending on property values. Right, which, you know, in California are really low. So I don't understand how it could be material <laughs> at all. Yeah, not to mention all of the crazy rules for uh, assessments and uh, Prop 13. Um, trying to keep your base year value low is a, is a big one, which is uh, unusual for folks outside of California to see. All good stuff. So with that, you know, with that range of experience, right? You've got franchise tax board, you've got public accounting, you've got private law practice. Do you find that kind of throughout the span of your career and kind of focusing, you know, being based in California, you know, for seems like a large chunk of your career, if not the whole time, do you think there's just like a reoccurring thing that keeps coming up with the FTB and in the state? Or is it just kind of all over the place or, you know, do they like to pick on something in particular, you know, or is it kind of what's on top of the mind 
at that moment? Well, and this is probably speaks to just the multi-state practice in general, but over the years, there's been sort of this gradual shift where my clients used to be mainly located in California, and now more and more of them are located outside the state. Like my own clients are like, yeah, California's great. I don't pay, I pay, pay nothing now with all market-based sourcing. All my stuff is out of state. Don't really need you that much anymore. But hey, I've got a friend who's got a business in New Jersey or New York or somewhere else. And California's knocking on their door and all of a sudden their bills are a lot, a lot higher. So it's a big shift uh, in multi-state practice because of, because of this really sort of exporting the uh, tax revenue to uh, out-of-staters. But as far as like FTB's favorites, uh, I don't think that's really changed a lot. Residency is a huge one. California's uh, personal income tax rate is sky high. And then when you consider uh, that there's no special rate for capital gains, California becomes almost as significant as federal when you have a large transaction. So there is an incentive to uh, leave, sever residency for these large transactions. And FTB is, is all over that. And then there's always the secondary issue with residency as well. How about source? Because if you're a non-resident, perhaps this massive gain has a source in California. So they're big on that. Unitary determinations for the uh, for the corporate folks. That's that's a, a pretty hot area as far as activity. And I really think we're just starting, and it's going to become it's going to overwhelm. It's going to be the main thing. If it isn't already is sourcing sales of other than tangible personal property under market-based sourcing. The main reason is we have a single sales factor in California, have an economic, not even economic, factor presence nexus standard, which is triggered based on sales. So you're looking at these market-based sourcing rules, not only to determine what your apportionment percentage is, but do you even have a filing obligation? And the answer is not always clear the rules and guidance that, that we've been given. So a really uh, huge issue is, is market-based sourcing because not only does it determine nexus and, you know, you owe zero, zero, do you have a zero percent or maybe a hundred percent, depending on how you interpret a particular rule or anywhere in between. So that's where I see it, see it going. Yeah. Which is not too uncommon from what, from what we deal with. And then kind of wrapping those all into one, you know, we, especially then when you're dealing with kind of humans on the opposite end of that versus corporations, when, you know, we have a client who has kind of a, a really unique business that is doing really, really well. They are a pass-through entity with with unique set of facts where their customers are insurance companies Right, but insurance, if it's State Farm based in Bloomington, Illinois, is insuring houses in California, you know, it's not Illinois that's getting that benefit. It's actually the residents in California where the policyholders are that, you know, this company supports. So there's that sourcing challenge, but then it's flowing up to an individual who's a non-resident, but also paying tax at 12.3% or just shy of that based on, you know, the ratios of federal AGI and all that nonsense. So it's, yeah, we have, those are kind of those top three all, 
you know, nicely packaged to one of our, our one large client. human clients. Right. Yep. right. And there's a lot of folks like that. And I don't know if you're familiar with this Metropolis case that just was released by a court of appeals in California, which talks about just that as far as like business entities income flowing up into ultimately what is an individual tax under the personal income tax laws. And the personal income tax laws have a rule, it's the Mobila rule, it says you source gain from intangibles to the state of residency. But in this Metropolis case, the gain was the sale of business at the S-Corp level. And what the court held was that, hey, we look at the apportionment at the S-Corp level and whatever California apportioned income at the S-Corp level flows through to the individual and and becomes California source income for that individual. The taxpayer argued this was an intangible income because almost all the gain, all the gain, I believe, was um, from the sale of goodwill, which is an intangible. Well, the court didn't agree and said, you just basically you flow it through, apportionment equals California source income for non-residents. So was that case more decided on, well, or maybe a combination of sourcing and unitary? Rules? It didn't go up on unitary. Uh, it, it, I mean, you have to have a unitary business to right. apply any of these rules. But there was no question that there was a unitary business. It was the Paps Brewing Company. So they were, you know, a pretty large international sure. corporate taxpayer. And they had a lot of activity in California. But there's been, and FTB has been fighting this fight since before I was even at FTB. And there was a state board of equal case venture communications where the state board of equalization came out the other way, but it was an unpublished opinion and FTB didn't like it. They actually promulgated regulations contrary to it and litigation ensued. Here we are, she's almost 20 years later, more than 20 years later, probably since they've been fighting this. And now we finally have resolution, although we don't know if they will uh, seek review by the California Supreme Court, which is a possibility, and they may overturn. But there is now a published Court of Appeals decision on this issue. Yeah, which is contrary to kind of what the other big kind of pass-through holdings, you know, the vast holdings out of Massachusetts, you know, within the last couple of months. But it was different set of facts, right? It wasn't gain reported at the S-Corp. It was gain reported at the shareholder level. And whether or not it was Massachusetts source gain, and again, kind of looking at the unitary principle kind of that they focused on, as Stacy had mentioned. So just, you know, it's always funny. And it seems like here recently, maybe people or it's more publicized or what that people are really paying attention to. Right. It's always an issue. It's always been a pain for us as practitioners of like, well, what are we going to do with this giant occasional gain? Right. right. Mm -hmm. to like how we're going to treat it correctly, especially again from pastors, a lot of it has to affect humans, right? Yep. And so it's a lot, the emotional attachment to writing a $12 million check from a human is much different than, <laughs> you know, a corporation yes. or like a business entity writing a $12 million check. Oh yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, this is such a common area for me is business, non-business income. So it's, it's, very frequently, the cases I get involved in start with a sale of a company or you get the company. Mm -hmm. And it used to be a little more debatable, and it's still not completely decided. But I mean, what is, is it business or non business income? You have to like look at that 
question. Perhaps there's a chance you can say it's not business income, in which case you would source any gain to the commercial domicile of the seller. But we have the functional tests, which is pretty clear now. And uh, so then you got to look at, well, was this a unitary business? Maybe the connections with California or whatever state you're debating, do you, there's a different unitary business. Maybe, hey, this is a separate unitary business from the unitary business being conducted in California. And you can't tax a gain from one unitary business based on factors of another. So th those are big issues. They come up. And then the second part of it is, okay, so perhaps it is business income now. How do we assign the gain? Uh, and then we kind of fall right into the, um, the apportionment regulations that they have now on market-based sourcing and looking at how did you apportion, what was your apportionment percentage in the year of sale? Okay, well, that's how much we're taxing you. And lastly, and this is every time, it's like a matter of practice when you have a substantial sale and there's, there's an audit, it's like you really need to quickly look at the other states. What happened in the other states? Is there refunds sitting there perhaps? Did you overpay? Maybe you truly believed it was non-business income and you paid 100% of the tax on the gain to your stated commercial domicile. Now you're getting audited by California or another state saying, hey, this is business income. We're going to get our cut of it. Well, you might want to file a claim with the commercial domicile state before the statute of limitations on refunds expires. Then you're really just set up to pay double tax. So that's like the first thing I do is where else have you paid any amount of tax? What was your position? Let's make sure we're protecting you. I mean, sometimes I've gotten involved in a case where I was like, oh no, we're getting hammered with this business income case. And then took a look at all the other states and we turned what they thought was getting hammered into something nominal in the end. When you look at the aggregate, all right, well, we'll get refunds here and there and there. And okay, so maybe we can negotiate here and not totally win. And you kind of mitigate the potential damage. Yeah. Trying to explain that concept of business income versus non-business income to the unknowing. It's like, but I'm not in the business of, I don't know, selling land or whatever, but it's like, okay, fine. Right. But did you use that land in order to create all of your other business income? And yeah. it's almost a given that if you call something non-business income, you will be audited. Like 100%. <laughs> if there's a lot of money there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, one mm -hmm. of my one of my first mis like this still like haunts me to my day to the day. I I don't remember what I was doing, but I put I accidentally put a gain on the wrong line as an adjustment on the return and it didn't get caught. This is like over 15 years ago, I think. And it came out as like non-business income and automatically got audited by the state of Montana, which generally isn't one of those well-known states to, you know, pick on someone. But because I had that gain on a non-business line, we got audited and this stupid thing like carried on for like two, three years because of just like a mistake. So it's like, I always am hypersensitive to that like business, non-business kind of just classification. Or yeah, well, right. Or, yeah, that was that was right. That was that was a whoopsie. Uh, well, yeah, that was a whoopsie. Right. It's funny you happens. mentioned Montana because I just had a Montana case wrapped up on business non-business income, and that was quite a challenge. We ended up settling at a really really good rate, but they were very aggressive. So they they saw non-business income and they were 
full guns blazing, allied signal never happened. Everything's business income. There's no such thing. Wow. Case law there that actually, uh, they had the Supreme Court case, uh, Montana Supreme Court case. It was a um, Ward Box Company. And it ended up going to the U.S. Supreme Court at the same time as like the, the Woolworth case and then and a couple of others. And then those cases said, hey, you know, there is a limit. The unitary business principle does limit state's ability to tax. Sent back down and they said, oh, but you, you admitted it because you filed this way in other states. That was the end of it. Uh-huh. Now you've got the Supreme Court case, which is, they say is, you know, everything's unitary. In any case, we settled at a good good rate. We settled to um, on that one. Because what also is really trippy is kind of in California, it's got that, is that kind of the distortion rules, right? Where, you know, but it's being, it's an apportionment concept where it's like you can pull it out of your factor, but then you still have the gain in your your business, in your tax base. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're you're kind of getting, it's not equal representation, which is really frustrating. Yeah. I mean, and these issues come up all the time and there is room to argue about it. Now, California has their rule and their regulation where substantial and unusual sales are thrown out of the sales factor, but the income is still in there. Mm -hmm. The question is, hey, is this a fair reflection of income? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not. So you, but I mean, the regulation applies. It's a regulation under 25137, which is the alternative apportionment statute. So now that it's a final regulation, it's as if this is the regular rule. But you can challenge that regular rule under alternative apportionment to say this is not fairly reflecting what's going on. Right. Factor representation. It's similar to the notion of getting dividends from foreign companies. Uh, the dividend's just in. Well, can we get some? No, we're just going to tax that based on the apportionment. That has nothing to do with the dividends. That doesn't really fly. There's definitely a lot of arguments and, and room for getting representation in the in the factor. All good stuff. So let's kind of shift. These are all kind of like intermingled, but there's a couple things. And I'm Stace. What do you want to? What do you want to? Well, pick Michael's brain, to, brain on first. Well, I kind of want to take a step backwards because I feel like we've had even all through my career too, like questions about just nexus in general, right? And a lot of, and myself included, a lot of practitioners, clients, taxpayers will look to kind of California's rules to say, okay, what what are they saying? Because there's a lot published, right? Mm -hmm. And that can be good and that can be bad. So I think one of the things that I've had through my career as a state and local tax practitioner, and I've got, you know, I've had other people call me or, you know, we've been brought in in certain situations to say, okay, we think we have nexus in California because we've exceeded the $500,000 rule or we know that it's indexed for inflation. So you started out 500, it's, you know, gone up over, over time. But I'm not always so sure that that's really something to hang your hat on because I feel like the it's a little bit of a trap for the unwary, the doing business standard. And so I just would love to get your thoughts on that because I feel like, you know, if you're registered, done. Obviously you're doing business. Or if you have these, you know, if you meet these bright line, done, you have nexus. Or if you're just otherwise, you know, doing business in the state. So I feel like that kind of otherwise deriving or otherwise doing business is a real trap for the unwary. So I'd just like to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. There's there's three ways you're done. <laughs> <laughs> or you're just kind of done regardless, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. One is by virtue of qualifying with the California Secretary of State. 
So you're just coming now you have filing obligation. The other is you hit the thresholds in the factor present statute. It's uh, 23120. There's A and B. A is what the old school nexus, basically. Uh, and any transaction for pecuniary gain or profit in the state creates nexus. The State Board of Equalization interpreted that provision to require physical presence. And there's B, which is presence nexus statute. So you could have, you know, property, payroll, or sales in the state exceeding their, the amounts. And it's almost 700,000 now. It started at 500,000. So you can have them in any of those ways. So you may have less than 500,000 or whatever the amount is of sales in California, but you sent a sales representative to California. Now you got it under A, the old school way, because there's a Scripto and Tyler Pipe, these classic Supreme Court cases that say it doesn't matter if they're employees or independent contractors, if they're there to establish or maintain a market, then that's sufficient to create nexus. So, and then another thing to think about, and this is where it gets, I don't know, you're having to explain it to humans, <laughs> um, is when you have flow-through entities and flow-through entities, it's just, hey, you know what, we're going to flow through your California source income all the way till, not quite till you get to a person, to all to entities, and those count towards your sales factor number. So now, but at the end of this, you've got a, a person there. Say, say it's an S-Corp or it could be an LLC. At the very end of it, it's an individual. And here's your tax bill. You have now all these entities have nexus. Why? Because the lowest one had it. The lowest one had 501,000. And your, or your share of it is 501,000. All the way through. And then the individual who is not even subject to these nexus provisions pays tax because FTB's view, and it's in the statute, um, you have California source income as a non-resident you pay tax. It doesn't really address, hey, you know, you might have some due process arguments for not. It just comes out and says, you have California source income, you pay tax for individuals. Which is also kind of an interesting, because at, at some point, you know, there was the opportunity to say, okay, yes, I exceeded California's factor presence rule. Let's say we're truly a remote seller, right? We have $700,000, we'll adjust that number for inflation. We'll claim 86,272 and not pay income tax. Here's your $800 and we'll just move on. But then now you have kind of that quote unquote modernization of 86,272 from the MTC perspective. And California, I believe, was the first jurisdiction to kind of glom on to those new changes or modernizations or whatever you want to call them, pain in the butts, in their, in their TAM from earlier this year that kind of even negates the ability to hang your hat on 86272 if you essentially operate a website. <laughs> yeah, you really think there's going to be more to come on this and whether it's going to be through audits and appeals or other rulings. You got to remember these TAMs, legal rulings, chief counsel rulings are FTB legal stats views of, of the law. So their guidance and their views, but they're not the law. Uh, there's a lot of debate about whether this MTC project holds any water. Is this, you know, can you change what, what is stated in the federal statute? I mean, their argument is we're just interpreting it. It's always been this way, but the world didn't have the internet when they made it. 
Right. Well, about now it's here. So they're going to have to refine. And the states, California included, all, all the states are always a step behind technology, maybe more than a step. That's fine. It's like, hey, if you get stuff via email, it's like you might as well say facts. I mean, where are we now with this? What are, are they possibly going to be eliminated in the future? And we have something else. And now we're like, oh, cookies. Well, we don't have cookies because they don't exist anymore. But really what they're looking at, the, the things they say as far as the website is okay, they, they piggyback off of what Wayfair said about um, virtual presence. They said, hey, that's a good idea. Let's use, let's use that sort of thinking with the federal statute that limits a state's ability to impose an income tax, even though Wayfair was a sales tax. But that gave them the idea and they went through and at the MTC, I mean, there was, you know, over you know a year, a couple of years of back and forth about what we're going to do, and California came out. New York's got their drafts regs that are about to go final. Pretty much what the MTC said, and you look at it, and they're looking at okay, is there an FAQ button where you can talk to someone live, live chat? Like if I email someone directly and ask a question and get emailed back directly, that doesn't seem to. There's a little button on the website I click that creates an email that suddenly becomes activity in the state. And to me, that's the big challenge for all of the states that are pushing this is, are these things that are done over the internet sufficient to be activity within the state for the person viewing it? I don't know. It seems like a stretch to me, but maybe not. Maybe maybe it works. And I'm not hammering the the desk on either side because there's also folks who may benefit from this. And that mm-hmm. would have been getting throwback sales to their, their sales factor. Now, and FTB even mentions this kind of in the TAM second to last paragraph. Hey, you know what? PLA 6272 protection also required you to throw back your sales from California to these States because PLA 6272 protected you. But now with this new interpretation, I think it'd be very difficult for FTB to, you know, go away from it in the throwback case. They might try to distinguish it on the facts or say you didn't get it on the facts, but there's some throwback and that's your limitations on, on refunds. So anyone with substantial throwback should be looking at their website, looking at how much they did throwback, what years are still open, how much is there possibly to claim a refund based on this new position. Now, does California take the position that you have to file a return in order to avoid throwback? Or are you just subject to tax whether or not you have to file a return? Oh, 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 oh. in the other state, you don't know. You don't have to file a return. It's just a, it's a constitutional, it's a jurisdictional standard. So it's under the Constitution or PL 86272, can the state, can they, do they have the ability right. to impose this on you? Not whether they do or not. So sales into Nevada are not automatically thrown back to California. If Nevada could constitutionally and consistent with federal law impose a, an income tax. Yeah, and I and I kind of am throwing the question out there just from... You know, Illinois has their throw out provision when it comes to the sale of services, but their statute, I think, says like file a return mm-hmm. in order to avoid throw out. And I got, we're just, we're just showing how bad Meredith is at her job. These, you know, 
this hour. I got nailed on an audit kind of when I was a young practitioner on kind of that throwout provision of the sale of services where we really also got kind of met screwed is that they were US sales, but to foreign jurisdictions. And so those got thrown out and that was basically 50% of our factor. And we couldn't prove that we were paying like that or anywhere else, but was also really obnoxious because that they were a Colorado-based company and it was prior to when Colorado had went to market-based sourcing. Mm-hmm. So under the ratio of cost test from a service perspective, we were sourcing like 98% of our services to Colorado, but also got nailed on throwout in Illinois because like our destination sales weren't, you know, being, it was, it was unpleasant. Hmm. Uh, for alternative apportionments. I want to get it. <laughs> our auditor, on it. <laughs> our auditor was also a robot that like didn't use the bathroom, didn't drink water and didn't leave like the office that we had him set up in. And so they were just like, we sold the company. We just need this to go away. <laughs> but it also, it has so happened that like, it was not fun in an income year, but also they had losses on the subsequent years. So we did kind of offset some of that benefit, but the company That's was just good. like, make this guy go away. He's awful. It's like that all over. Sometimes you just got to stick with it and move on to the next person. They're not going to help you out or see, see the light. Yeah. Gotta have a client willing to want to do that too. Yeah. They were just like, make go away. I don't care. It's like a hundred grand. We oh, just right sold our company for like a hundred million dollars. I don't care. Yeah. Like right it's one state, you know, when you're talking about alternative apportionment, I mean, for the viewers, I guess, what does that entail to, let's say that, you know, they were like, Hey, you know what? I kind of, I'm, I'm curious about this alternative apportionment. Do we need to petition the state for that? What is what is kind of the procedure for that? I know it can vary by state. Yeah, I'll, I'll just tell you California. And I think California's got more rules on this than most states, but it's not so far off. Usually you have to ask. And, you know, may, I'll just describe it in a matter I just did, actually. So the not unusual fact pattern of a sale of a business, uh, that business was a unitary business conducted throughout the United States, including California. Historically, it filed in California with a, about a 10% portion percentage. Then in March of the year, they sold their company in March. So all of the assets are sold. But one set of assets that could not be sold until there was approval granted by a certain agency unrelated to tax in California. So they had to continue to operate that portion of the business until they got that approval which they did get in September. So this client took a position that the gain was just non-business income, but they did allocate some amount to California. They filed a return and paid a little bit of tax. They got audited. The auditor said, this is business income and here's the tax. The apportionment percentage in the last year, which is the year of sale was 35%. Why did that happen? That happened because this very unique situation, which was that the entire business was sold except for this small portion. This small portion was exclusively in California. So it was running its business, jacking every sale that came in was a California sale. And as a result, and we also had records quarterly to show, hey, the first quarter of the year of sale was consistent with prior year's apportionment of about 10%. Now we're jacked up to 35% because 
we are looking only at what's, or for most of the year, we're looking at exclusively California. Now you are, you, California, the auditor, are of course this gain on the scale of the entire business. The gain was developed over years, years of time with the apportion percentage of the years back. It's always a test case. Like I always take a look just for, you know, is this right? How much, what was your apportionment in the years of the value of this company going up? Clearly here, 10, 10, 10, 35, what? So explain this to the auditor. The auditor was just like, no. <laughs> okay, well then I'm going to make, and the auditor understood that she didn't quite understand, which was fine because there's a procedure in place. You file a petition for alternative apportionment, which we did. And there, there's an alternative apportionment committee at the Franchise Tax Board who reviews alternative apportionment requests. You have a hearing, which I had a hearing, about 30 minutes of a hearing. And in this case, we got a result, which was, you're right, in about two weeks, because, come on, it is pretty obvious here that's an overreach and a misunderstanding. So that is really the process. Now there's a whole set of proposed regulations, which it's so narrow, I, I don't wanna even talk too much about it, but it's the process and the procedures for, like if, if the committee found against my client in that case, I could then request that the full franchise tax board, as in the three people who are on the board hear the case. Mind you that their legal advisors are the ones who just made this decision, but nevertheless, there's this, it's in the statute. The statute says the board will review. So then you can go to the board and ask them to review. And there's a, some detailed procedures and briefing and whatnot with that. I would very rarely ever use that. I really just very rarely would. There's been a few who have tried. Philip Morris is one, for example. So they went and they took their and they didn't want a single sales factor. So they were challenging the single sales factor as distortive. And they said, all right, well, we want not just an evenly weighted three-factor formula, but we want a four-factor formula and we want to double weight the property factor. Of course, they're all in Virginia. So that right there kind of tells me, okay, you don't really have the numbers to get it because that just sticks out as kind of odd. But they took it to the board the Franchise Tax Board made their argument, which to me, one of the things that was just uh, telling, I guess, is they said, okay, fairly reflecting income. The single sales factor does not fairly reflect income, says the taxpayer, because it discount doesn't count whatsoever all of the property and payroll required to generate income. And the FTB's response before the hearing, this is all public information, is that a fair reflection of income is the market. That's what the legislature said. So that's what we're saying. And of course they lost, but you don't get like an opinion or anything as to why. It's perhaps, hey, you know what? You just couldn't, didn't have the numbers to show the distortion because you have to show distortion in the, or in the regular formula. Right. You have to prove that. And it's a pretty high bar. Like, oh, it's just off a little bit. It's not gonna cut it. And right. I, under the law, they, they, they looked at all of the case law and there's quite a bit of case law and distortion in California. It was like the numbers were not working out. So they needed to double the, the property factor to get there. 
This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.